This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Amanda Kovatana is a biracial, tricultural writer who grew up in Bangkok in a pre-industrialized Thailand before immigrating to California in 1968. She was born in England to an English mother and a Thai father and lived in England during their college years. As a gender non-conforming child living in Thailand, she benefited from the third gender culture of her Thai heritage. Her coming of age in the San Francisco Bay Area as a lesbian introduced her to the gay community and the evolving gay liberation movement. Her skill set draws from her engineer father teaching her how to fix things, while her mother's profession as a child therapist and family counselor gave her an understanding of child development and neurodivergent brain styles. She makes a living as a professional organizer specializing in the chronically disorganized and neurodivergent personalities. In this episode, we discuss her new book, The Unexpected Penis, which is linked in her liner notes. And with that, here's our conversation with Amanda. All right, welcome back to Transparency, everyone. I am Aaron Kimberly here with my co-host, as always, Aaron Terrell, and uh, we w- welcome you, Amanda, uh, to have this conversation with us. Thank you for having me. I, I particularly appreciate that the theme of the show is transparency, because that is how I learned it in my own culture, that transparency of third gender people was the way it would work the best mm-hmm. to integrate us all into the greater society. That's an interesting way of looking at it. I hadn't thought of that. You know, when we when we use the word transparency, I mean that was our intention, right? Is to just unpack all of this with honesty and and work through some of these really difficult concepts. But I mean that takes me right to one of my notes about your book. You have a chapter where you talk about third gender concepts because you grew up in Thailand where there was sort of a you know the lady boys or the toms um and but as other people have told us that in in those cultures it's understood that they're not literally the opposite sex right but they have qualities of the opposite sex so maybe i mean maybe that would be a great place to start you know g- given your upbringing because i thought that chapter was was really quite very interesting and, and illuminating and um and introduced ideas that i hasn't hadn't been aware of like the idea of reincarnation and what that might mean in this context so maybe if you could explain mm-hmm. that chapter a little bit i'd be fascinated to hear about that yes um in that chapter i refer to my culture in thailand as having a third gender indigenous knowledge and we we have a word for such people. It is katoi, and it's uh, uh, also other Asian cultures, particularly, have similar categories for for people. Um, so Thailand, where I was a, a gender nonconforming child, 
this was not seen as a bad thing, just a different thing. And it was my aunt who told me that you have the spirit of a boy. And when you talk about spirits, uh, in in a culture that has reincarnation theology, it implies that you are a spirit that has been reincarnated from life to life. And for me to have have to have a spirit of a boy meant that I had in a past life been a man. And I was now reincarnating as a woman in order to perhaps resolve some karmic uh, issues that I had created in my last life. And I needed to see the other side of it, as it were. So in that sense, you, you're not rejected for being gender non-conforming. You're accepted and kind of shepherded into your current incarnation. So my relatives would uh, tolerate or just facilitate even my dressing masculine. And one relative even made me a little outfit that had a shirt collar and buttons and matching shorts, which I just loved. And that was okay to wear at home and perhaps to the beach and to informal occasions. But because I was representing my family at formal occasions, then it was my grandmother who would say, this is a little pink dress I bought for you to wear for this occasion, because now you're representing the family, not just yourself. And I was agreeable to that because I, I very much wanted to represent the family well. I, my family was fairly prestigious and we had a name in, in our communities to uphold. And I was the first grandchild. So it was a very privileged life and I was uh, a part of it and I wanted to uphold it. So that, that was my introduction to being to the ideas that were, were part of our culture. I didn't go to Thai school, so I my education came from English schools. The, the idea of reincarnation just permeates the culture. And my uh, the man who was the driver for my grandmother, he had a, a birthmark right in the middle of his forehead. And that a birthmark is a sign that you've been born again. You you so that's how I learned that yes, there are people are born again into different lives. And then the, as as for the term gatoi, that was just such such a uh, common usage, common term. Boys, boys didn't want to be gatoys because that likely meant that they would be uh, gay, and it. So they were horrified if something had been worn by a girl. So they they wouldn't wear 
pajamas, for instance. I couldn't loan my own pajamas to a boy because he he would be like, no, that that's for girls. <laughs> uh, but because I I was already a tomboy, that was fine for me. I, I was was happy to find clothes that suited my tomboy self. And at, at and my mother, who's British, she was had also been a tomboy. And it was a time where girls had uh, been encouraged to be more self-sufficient. She had grown up in during the war in England. So everybody had to be a little rough and tumble amidst all the rubble of bombed out neighborhoods. So she she also uh, catered to my love of having trousers with pockets or she even got me dresses with pockets, <laughs> little sailor outfits. So she did accommodate a bit my my gender nonconformity. She she didn't try to make me into the little feminine girl. So that that those two cultures together uh, helped me a lot to adjust. And I came to the United States when I was 10 years old and the tomboy factor was still at large. Nobody thought anything of it. The word tomboy is adopted by Thai culture to mean girls and women who present in a masculine fashion and they shorten it to Tom. So even now, because I still wear shirt collar on my blouses, my Thai culture recognizes me as Tom. Usually I would have my hair, you know, cut short like a male haircut. That that is a, a classic presentation, but having long hair doesn't um, discount my status as being a tom. So, in a sense, when I'm in Thailand, I am trans in the way that Americans now define it. So, in this sense, I feel like I can be somewhat of a bridge between an indigenous culture and what is coming online now that we are in <laughs> making into a state mandated religion as it were in California by legalizing and codifying gender identity defined as someone who has switched their sex, which would seem absurd to us in Thailand, even though, you know, we're always wanting to adopt some, the latest new Western thing. <laughs> it's one of my frustrations, you know, with because one of the, the things that they're teaching kids is that there's a gender spectrum and that there's, you know, I mean, the, the number keeps changing. There's 78 genders or there's 100 genders or there's an infinite number of genders, but really, and, and then they use things like, the fafafine or or you know these third sex categories third gender categories as proof that here are all these separate genders but really it's 
a single phenomenon. It's, it's I think, a phenomenon that occurs in some gay and lesbians, not all. And we see that phenomenon happening throughout history and globally, but different cultures have different ways of understanding and interpreting that phenomenon. So they're not all separate genders, they're just different cultural ways of understanding the same phenomenon. Right. And I, I came across an article that said that Thailand had 18 different genders, which I'd never heard before. But when I went to look at the article, all the words were English. Tom, D, they were all the nicknames. And there was only the one Thai word listed that where they could actually claim this is a Thai. So to me, it's as if Westerners came in, took some notes about all these nicknames we were using and decided to stratify them out into genders. And I'm like, this is totally bogus. Now everybody thinks that Thailand has 18 different genders of whatever. And I, I think, well, you know, we have nicknames like fag hag. Would you call that a sexuality? <laughs> Would that be a gender? <laughs> so that sounds like Western culture is is sort of infiltrating Thailand and, and how they're thinking about these things. Yes. I mean, you know, we, we, we love to be studied and, and written about. So people are happy to talk. And we never really read what gets published, so who cares? You know? mm. But this has, I found this document on, a, on the website for tourism from Taiwan to Thailand. And I was like, wow, this is really getting circulated internationally as this is what Thailand is about. We, we got all these 18 genders, but the, it's just like saying there are butch lesbians and there are femme lesbians, but is that a separate gender? It's just fascinating it's, to me that, that you know, Taiwanese tourists to Thailand are learning about these yeah, completely fake uh, cultural uh, classifications from probably a very Western, you know, queer focused you know, exactly. Author. Right. That's just yeah. Wow. And you know, nobody asks. Well, do do you have male and female sex, just two sexes, or do you have more than two sexes? If you ask that question, people would say no. Of course not. You know, male and female, and that's how we make babies. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it, the it, whole idea that that uh, the the that colonialism created the binary and imposed it on other cultures—it's like that's ridiculous. Are you saying that we don't know that how babies are made? <laughs> that you had to teach us <laughs> with your male and female binary stuff? <laughs> I've had, so I've had... now it's it's a form of cultural imperialism because yeah. now students from western schools from american schools are going to thailand and they're signing all their emails with their pronouns 
And I, I, I fielded a question from a professor in Thailand. Uh, she asked me, what are these nonsense tags? <laughs> <laughs> and I told her, oh, it's a way for people to stand up for the rights of transsexuals. And she was like, wow, that takes it up to a whole new level. I won't <laughs> worry about it. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a lot of people's perspective. It's like, oh, I'm not going to worry about it. Like, it's like, oh, no harm. Or then they're like, oh, for, you know, corporate ambitious reasons, people start putting them in, in theirs, even though they don't really get it. That's just like, oh, this is what we're doing now, whatever. And not realizing kind of, yeah, yeah, what what it's all about. It's fascinating. Right. So I feel like I should go to Thailand and offer to give a lecture on what Americans are creating around sex and gender and what to watch out for don't get colonized people yeah this is just the latest <laughs> shit from america <laughs> that's like i think that's what we, i think that's what europe is waking up to <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah I, I mean the reality too i mean it, it yes i mean these ideas they're spreading throughout the world and and damaging other cultures but the reality too is in north america we live in a very pluralistic society where people from thailand are living alongside people from england or or um here we call them first nations people the indigenous people who are all going to have their own cultures and their own spiritualities and their, you know their own understanding of these phenomenon and you, you mention in the book you know, the Biden administration's mandate that they hired a bunch of diversity and inclusion people within within their ranks and are really pushing and rolling out, you know, what you describe it, and we agree with you, this, you know, state-sanctioned religion that is violating the religious beliefs of of its own population. Exactly. Because colonialism begins at home. You know, you persuade the populace to take on these ideas and then you can push them overseas and say, if you don't adopt this civil rights, we won't give you aid. We won't give you the money that we're accustomed to helping you with. <laughs> yeah, so it's the arrogance, right, of, of one nation saying that what we're doing is correct and better and therefore all other nations should be doing it our way. Yes. So this in this conversation of gender, which is largely taking place among young white men and women wanting to be non-binary, very popular, wanting to cross sex, the communities that are immigrant communities are not going to be taking this on, especially the communities that understand already and have their own indigenous cultures. So we we can't assume that any of these communities are going to go along with this new paradigm. And as as it seeps into the schools and their kids come home with this and start saying, oh, I'm non-binary, their families are going to be like, what's going on here? Yeah, we're we're seeing that play out here in Canada too, where it it you're right, it it tends to be um some of the immigrant populations and that are speaking, starting to speak out about this. And um one of the rising 
leaders in that has been the Canadian Muslim community, and that that has stirred up a lot of anti-Muslim rhetoric within Canada that our government is now trying to, on one hand, say how non-racist they are, but on the other hand, you know, characterizing Muslims as backwards and and awful. Um, so it's it's a very bizarre um, seeing the left attack race and attack religion and it's just a it's a bizarre world we're living in right now and i i was curious what your thoughts might be because you did talk about the biden administration rolling this out and and being quite aggressive with pushing it what do you think it, they had i mean i don't believe that politicians do anything in an altruistic fashion yeah. so so why why do you think the biden administration would be pushing this as as heavily as they are I think because our LGBTQ agencies, human resource campaign and what have you, have taken this on. And by taking it on, they have to have some political agenda to keep the conversation going. They, they couldn't just say, oh, this is trans and this is how trans people want to be referred to or talked about. No, we have to push it so it becomes a political piece of the puzzle so that we can still have influence over the the, the parties. And and I <clears throat> and they've outlived their usefulness. So they had mm -hmm. to invent invent mm -hmm. more things to do. And they, there's, the money was coming in so heavily from trans wealth, meaning uh, middle-aged white men in power who have such wealth. They're, they're the second biggest community demographic that have transitioned mm -hmm. after the jump in young women wanting to trans. Yeah. So it's really not it's really not the LGB agenda anymore. No. We got what we wanted. We got gay marriage. We got our civil rights. I agree. It, it it seems yeah. to be coming from above, right? It, it doesn't seem like a grassroots movement anymore. It feels very much like it's being mandated from above down onto the population, including the LGBT. And, you know, and, but I think it's, it's politically, it's of a political advantage to have, or any political movement to have a population that continues to grow. And the fact that, you know, because of queer ideology, all these letters keep getting added to that LGBT. Now it's, you know, I've seen it almost 20 letters long sometimes, right? It's just this ever expanding collection of identities and, or even, in, you know, intersex medical conditions, which have absolutely nothing to do with sexual orientation. But I can see how it would benefit left-wing polit politicians to have, you know, captured the votes of this ever expanding population. So, you know, the queer th queering culture seems to be of political advantage as far as capturing those votes and characterizing, and I am left-wing, so I'm not trying to make a case for, you know, mm -hmm. against against the left and for the right, but I can understand the advantage of, of really securing, a, you know, a whole community and characterizing your opposition as being all hateful bigots 
And I think it would probably yes. surprise yes. a lot of people to sit down with conservatives and ask them what they think of these issues, um, as I've started to do, and realizing that there's a there's a range and variety of opinions within within the conservative ranks, including inclusiveness and uh, you know um, and pro gay, lesbian, and and transsexual sentiments, and and I think. But I had I had lived within the LGBT for so long and within left wing thinking for so long and was really indoctrinated to just assume that conservatives all hated us. It's a very popular narrative, and we we, we have a long history, European history as well, of having a persecution narrative that someone is being persecuted and and we must stand up for them. And that means that we have haters. So that is a very popular story. And if we keep fueling it with more minorities who need to be championed, then that keeps people with the right voting Democrat. But in reality, I, I don't encounter either racism or homophobia in the sense that people would want me to be shut up. I'm an entrepreneur, so I, I work with the public, work with wealthy people who are often Republican, and they, they have a, a different attitude than Democrats about race they they talk to me in a different way more in an entrepreneurial way like because i'm asian they they would assume that i am have an entrepreneurial spirit that that is uh often associated with asian people so they would talk to me more like that whereas a democrat might be much more treating me like i am one of them, I, that I would naturally be liberal, that I would uh, agree with them, and they're comfortable with me that way. Uh, and as far as homosexuality, you know, I was a little leery of letting my conservative clients know that I was gay, but once I, I did, they were very, are warm about it and and they would ask me how's your partner and treat me like family so in that sense i'd be like this is nonsense that there's there are haters out there because <laughs> i live in california being pretty liberal all around i you know i don't live in what is considered to be more of the hater red states but even so I would still want doubt. I still have my doubts about this whole narrative of haters and homosexuals. It's so very Christian. It it's so very saying this is a the Christian nationalists who want to take back the country, the US, uh, as under Christian parameters. But 
there may be pockets of that and you can always say look here it is and claim that as part of the persecution and the the narrative now is that oh the religious right have created all these anti-trans bills and you look at them and they're quite reasonable the ones that are in california actually written by the group i am now associating with moms groups and lesbians and women who are pushing back against this mandate of this new religion and the the bill just said we want the school to notify parents when a child has changed their gender at school and name so that's just a parent notification bill that is being called anti-trans well what's anti-trans about it there's a huge assumption here that parents are horrible and will make life miserable for their gay and trans child when the parents know perfectly well that this child had been going through a very difficult time and is autistic and has had uh, traumatic things happen in their life and they're concerned about it so they would want to know what what next so that and then all of the bills about we don't want drag queen story hour well we that's not entirely unreasonable i mean i'm i am a fan of drag because of long time being in the gay community but it's the way it's being implemented without parental permission and now there's a whole slew of books written to children to teach them about gender ideology about being born in the wrong body and poof i'm a, mm -hmm. i can change sex just like that and so this is a way of teaching children that you can cross boundaries that it's not true you can't change sex you can you can present and enhance a, a presentation as the opposite sex but it's not like children are very literal they're different you you have to teach them reality before you bring them into all of these different options so so that they at least understand what is reality so what you, what you were saying about the parents too i mean it, just to tie it in with what we were talking about earlier that there is you know this naturally occurring phenomenon amongst gay and lesbians that we just sometimes have this whatever you want to call it just this essence of the opposite sex and that's observable by everyone in our lives right i mean it, paul dr paul vesey described that from his research on the samoans at the fafafini that it's not like it was all a secret and then someone announced that they're fafafini i mean the whole community and the family they can see right that you mm -hmm. are just you have that quality about you and this is the name that we give that quality it's just sort of this naturally natural thing that bubbles up in some individuals but that's not what the, a lot of the parents are describing 
you know, a lot of the, I mean, yes, that phenomenon does exist in the West as well, but a lot of the parents are describing this came out of nowhere, that nobody yeah. in our family, nobody in our community, you know, this child was very gender conforming. And then all of a sudden, you know, something switches in adolescence and now they're identifying as trans. That's, that's a very different phenomenon from what we've all observed in the gay and lesbian community. Mm -hmm. Right. Because none of my family were surprised that I turned out to be a lesbian because they had been seeing it from me even before I was 10 years old. So, you know, in in my adolescence, they did try to uh, set me up with a date with a guy uh, just to see if it would take. But, <laughs> but then they realized it wasn't going anywhere. They really wanted me to come home to Thailand, my grandmother and all my relatives. So they were saying, well, you know, you don't have to get married. Look, look at so-and-so. She's not married. You're, you're perfectly welcome to live here. And had they known that I like girls, they probably would have started introducing me to all the other lesbians in the family, as long as I stayed in my own class, because it's very class stratified society. So they didn't want me to go to some random gay bar and meet some lower class girl. <laughs> You find that, you know, in Thailand, because it is stratified, do the different classes have different ideas about gender? Like, do the ladyboys exist in all classes or do they exist in some classes more than others? I would say that the, the gender uh, cross-dressing presentation is understood universally. But in the upper classes, there's more pressure on a, a child to remain conforming, gender conforming. Um, because of the family representation aspect yes, you're referring to? Right, right. right. And, and also because they are, they are very interested in keeping the family line going and having people re reproducing. But if it doesn't, stick then they're like oh well <laughs> yeah that's not a truth. gonna happen that's a yeah. truth that yeah that's a truth that i've heard before too in other cultures and and i would say that that's probably true in north america as well that they're because i know that some of the literature older literature on um gender non-conforming children that most of the kids that were that well there, there's been evidence that the kids from lower economic um, class families, that that uh, gender dysphoria tends to persist more often. So I, I would say, so that's a very clinical way of saying mm. it, but it, it, just, it, uh -huh. seems to, it just seems to be something that, that tracks from culture to culture that there seems to be perhaps more, I don't know if it's more tolerance or what it is that the persistent cross-sex behavior and presentation seems to, seems to be more with the lower classes and there's more pressure amongst upper classes. To, not that that doesn't exist in upper classes, but more pressure to suppress it in upper classes. Right, right. I, I 
can't really hazard uh, an explanation because I haven't seen any surveys or studies. Yeah. I, I would guess that there was actually more expression of the, the gender in the lower classes because there might be more opportunities for an effeminate boy, for instance, to go into the entertainment business. There's a huge uh, cross-sex entertainment industry, which is enjoyed by the whole population. And they have beauty pageants, all of that. It's sort of a fascination a, a national fascination, perhaps. And the Thai men are, are so beautiful when they present as women that they often win international beauty contests. And then when they do, like from New York or something, it's on the front page of the newspaper. Are they Sorry, are they competing against women? In those in those competitions, no, no, no. They, they have their own competitions. These are actually trans beauty contests right. that are held internationally, and so the Thai women, so Thai trans women, so often uh, end up winning these competitions, and that's a source of pride for Thailand to have won an international competition because our boys are so beautiful. <laughs> Is there is there a concept of gender dysphoria in Thailand? Would you say because you know there's a concept hmm. of sort of like like a cross like a, a cross gender spirit essentially kind of manifesting in in a person, but is there an associated kind of body dysmorphia understood in the culture, or is that not associated with it at all? I, I've never heard it mentioned. Okay. Um, you know, I mean my comrades, my top and comrades, they they just go right ahead and adopt a wardrobe that is masculine. And they really do it with a great deal of attention to detail and style. And even when they achieve professional status and are presenting lectures, they'll have suits designed that will enhance their masculine presentation and everybody's all right with it because it's clear how to, how to uh, accept such a person, to, to not assume that they're heterosexual, say, and to appreciate that they have some expertise and would like to share it with their community. So that's all absolutely fine. Um, for for the women, for the men, I don't see as men cross-dressing so much in my social strata. In fact, I have seen that such a a, a man would present as female in certain situations and as male in in another mm -hmm. just to facilitate their own negotiation of the world now now that 
it's become more accepted and trans identities, male trans identities are becoming more acceptable, then they can present full time more as women, you know, mm -hmm. if they're going into political office or representing trans rights. But there just isn't as much of a, a, a fever to get self-ID to, to legitimize this. Everybody in Thailand has to carry identification which says their sex on it. And there, there's no real push to change that. It's just not going to happen. No, and they don't need it if there's societal acceptance. You know, I don't, I don't think, yes. you know, right. but I think just to your, to your question, Aaron, I mean, what you're describing, Amanda, seems, it does seem to fit my impression um, just from talking to so many people through this podcast, but my impression is that the body dysmorphia part seems pretty culture bound. That seems like a very Western phenomenon. Um and I suspect, mm -hmm. so I think that is a symptom. I think that's a cultural symptom. So I think that that the cross-sex identification is probably pretty universal and exists, you know, amongst humanity. But I think the body dysmorphia is largely because our culture doesn't have a concept to explain and label and integrate right, right. gender nonconformity. Yes. And, and also the Christian culture in general is very... It just doesn't have a, a, a an acceptance of the body of of uh, the animal nature of us sexuality and whatever else is going on with the body especially women who have even more going on and are considered dirty or unclean so the this idea of being able to separate the mind from the body is is very much a, a western cartesian mm -hmm. philosophy and which i don't see in asian cultures buddhism is is the uh majority religion in thailand so buddhism is all about being centered in the body and in the breath and scanning your body to release tensions. So it's not about distancing yourself at all from mm -hmm. being in, incarnated. I love that perspective, you know, and it's probably my bias because I, I, I am a spiritual person. So I love hearing about spiritual understandings of this stuff. And it's my, the explanation I was given about two spirit was that some um, North American indigenous uh, um, tribes believed that everyone has both a male and female spirit inside of them. And that for some people, one spirit is, is stronger than, than the other. Um, so they have, a, there are, so the concept of two spirit is also very embedded in the spiritual, you know, beliefs of, of those cultures. And you're, and you're right that Christianity doesn't seem to have any equivalent way of explaining this? The only biblical reference that I found um, was maybe the eunuch, but there's no spiritual explanation for that. Mm. That was that was more, you know, a cultural 
the cultural phenomenon of of castrating slaves, for example. But I, I'm fascinated mm. by that by just thinking about this in terms of a a spirituality that that we've that we're our spirits are um, you know inhabiting this body for the time being, and why would some of us have this this dilemma, right, of this masculine spirit in a female body or a feminine spirit in, in a male body. And I, I know some feminists won't want to think of it that way, but I think it, I find it helpful to, and to, to think about it. And there is, um, I saw a YouTube video. Um, I don't remember her name now, but she does a, she does a bunch of YouTube videos and is a, a kind of a spiritual leader in the United States. And she talked about this transsexual phenomenon she has some fairly conservative values, so I, I was skeptical of what she'd have to say about the transsexual phenomenon. But she said she was pondering that question too: of, of we choose our life, we choose our our carnation, and why would we choose this dilemma for ourselves and of this this, mm. this disconnect, right? This incongruence. And she said she her belief is that um, that it's about finding authenticity that when we're born into this dilemma of feeling so inauthentic, she said that the, the spiritual quest is, is authenticity. And we hear that word authenticity in the trans movement so much, right? About your true self and your yes. authentic right. self, but it seems, so I think, I think there might be something to that, that, that I think we are craving authenticity but I think that that idea of authenticity has been really distorted by queer theory and what mm, what mm, the whole purpose right, of this is right. and what yeah you know, or how to achieve that authenticity. I would say that a lot of this has to do with our feeling a lack of agency. We just don't do so much for ourselves anymore. We don't fix our own cause. We don't know how things work anymore because it's all so mysterious computers and I mean when I was a child my father was an engineer and so he would teach me how to fix my own flat tires and how to help him fix the car do the brakes and all so all these things seemed within grasp my mother taught me to sew, we all sewed. So we had these mechanical machines that were easily understood and that we could use and feel we had agency in the world. So when there's none of that and you're spending so much time online as young people are, and there's all these opportunities to change your identity with different avatars, it all becomes, that's your agency. That's mm -hmm. how we manifest in the world. And the world just gets scarier because we don't know how to uh, uh, fix our own households. That, that was my uh, original interest was to figure out how I can live a life where I understand all the mechanics of my house and I can fix things that go wrong. Plumbing, for instance. <laughs> and that, that Plumbing. Kind of, that's, 
sounds like uh, a segue into your your other book that also sounds very interesting. The uh, was it a girl's guide to uh, living off grid or something like that? Yes, Is yes. That, that, the, that inspiration. Yes, yeah. Th that that's my lesbian memoirs segueing into how I got off grid and uh, created this life where I've basically taken on all the sewage and plumbing issues and claim them for myself. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it makes me feel more grounded in, in living in a space that I can manage so well like that. That if, if some dr dramatic thing happened, no electricity, no fuel, water, I have alternatives to fall back on. And we, we used to do that more. We used to have hobbies. But now the hobbies are, have become all online and they're not skill-based. So we're losing. We're losing so many skills mm -hmm. as we progress. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing a resurgence of some of those skills, though. It, it, even in, in my church in Vancouver, I mean, a very densely populated area of Vancouver, but there seemed to be an interest amongst the congregation in learning some of those old homesteader skills. And so they ran a series of workshop on, on just things that every grandmother that I knew growing up used to know, like how to how to can, you know, um, pickles and and things yes. like that, you know, sewing and canning and and growing food and growing bread and and so there does seem to be an, and especially through COVID and this you know this economic shift, sorry, uh -huh. economic, the economic shift that's happening. There seems to be a new sort of a rebirth of of interest in learning those skills. There has been, uh, and it is a, a pushback to all the high tech. So that there's even a movement of uh, teenage girls who are getting offline, like like getting rid of their smartphones and stuff. And it's like this cool thing to do is to huh. go completely offline, which is, is like incredibly wholesome. Yeah, I had I yeah, had heard them, that. Call themselves the, the the luddites, apparently. That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I I hope that's a social contagion that catches on. Right. <laughs> yeah, the, the cooler you are, the more disconnected you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> and and there is a. A uh, homesteading cottage core is what what it's called online of yeah. of people who are sewing these period clothing and getting all into traditional weaving and making and then sharing that online in very sophisticated uh, videos. So I I watch those too because I I like to sew and create these things. And there's a lot of information being uh, ex exchanged online about growing food and be becoming more sustainable. So we are sharing those skills, but we're, we're being completely distracted by this need to form an identity uh, where there was no need. Core. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know in my just in my friend circle, I've known quite a few people that have moved away from the city and and bought property and are, are trying to live as off grid as possible or entirely off grid. And 
I guess I've done a, a hybrid of that. I'm not off grid, but I have moved to a, a more rural area and live very minimally. And, and I love that. So I, I can, I really can understand and, and relate to what you mean, like the appeal of living off grid and it just simplifies everything. Right. And, and your, your, your life is about doing those things, right. Chopping the wood mm -hmm. or growing your yeah. garden or canning your, your tomatoes or whatever there, that is life. And, but I, I love the containment and the simplicity of that and, and knowing those skills. It's, I, I don't even know how to, how to articulate why that's so appealing, but it, it's, it is the antidote to this very abstract digital world that we're living in. I think it, it has, a, because there's always something to do. If you're growing a garden that you then have to harvest it and then have to put seeds in again. So it's always demanding something from you. And uh, the same with, because I've taken on my own sewage duties, there's always going to be a slop bucket to haul out and dispense with so that that's an ongoing relationship i have with my own house that it will be will continue as long as i'm here in it so that that is gives me something to do <laughs> so it it takes away from uh cogitating about well how do i make an authentic imprint on the world how do i have agency yeah and it's then very, it's, it's literally minimal. grounding right like it literally yes, grounding it is, like you know you're, you're kind of tied to the cycles of where you live and you know to maintain it and yeah it's um yeah, grounding, grounded, I guess is the best way. Yeah, I, and and I'll connecting, connecting, the, connecting to is. natural rhythms too, right? Uh, I think it's 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 kind of right. what you're saying right. like it's it's these seasonal rhythms. I mean, I'm experiencing this now mm -hmm. since I moved back to the prairies, and I've been now through a winter here and and most of the summer, and so I spent my winter, you know just trying to stay warm and keeping my driveway shoveled. And so that had its own rhythm. And now it's the rhythm of right, planting a garden and mowing the lawn and um, all those, all that preparation, and then the harvest, and it, it is, it is a much more grounding way of living, and and I feel healthier doing it, and and I'm never bored. I, there's always something I can be doing out in the yard or or in the home to just maintain it, right, and and to maintain that that rhythm. I don't understand boredom <laughs> any anymore. <laughs> there's always right. something to do. Yes. Yes. Yeah. My garden was was well, a horrible failure this year. I, I had all plans. Uh, I bought all the jars and had these big plans of all the canning I was going to do. And my garden this year was not a success. So I won't have anything to can, but it's all a hmm. learning. It's all a learning experience. Practice. Yep. Right. Right. I had to learn how to get water out of my well to start with. That was the problem. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an endeavor. Yeah. I know you had a well. When I was younger, I was very fascinated by utopia and how people form community and what happened. And I remember this one com community, they got it all dialed in. They were all perfect and everything. And then their leader says, it's time to go. 
because we will get too comfortable this way and we need to go somewhere else and build again. And I was so intrigued by this idea that the point was not to get comfortable. The point was to keep in that space of visioning what we'd like to see and working towards it as a community. Because once you got too comfortable, then people would start creating a, a new level of problems mm. to deal with. That reminds me of a, of a like how much, how, yeah, that reminds me of anecdote. I think it actually came from a, a Buddhist teacher who said, someone commented that the way that he had, out, had had designed the room, that when you were sitting around the coffee table, if you wanted your tea, you had to actually kind of really reach for it. And he said, well, I did, I did that. I did that intentionally, right? I did that intentionally because I don't want to create too much comfort. I wanted to create just that little bit of tension of uh -huh. having to having to make that little bit of extra effort to grab your tea. We live in such a convenience society, yeah. right? So that seems so so contrary to how we think, right? If we had to reach for yeah. our coffee table and right, it was uncomfortable, right. we, we would think that was a horrible design flaw. <laughs> well, yeah. we, this, this kind of brings us right back to where we were started or where we were a little bit ago with the whole victimhood. It's like, you know, we, we have to have something to fight against, right? We have to, we, we have to have, yeah, we have to have struggles. We have to work for something. And if we're in too comfortable a setting, which I think we have been um, for from quite a few years now, it's like we we'll, we will invent problems to fight against and to try to solve. And if that's, yeah, apparently transphobia in the Bay Area, we'll, we'll create it so we can fight it, you know? It's just, uh, uh, I think that's, yeah, that's where that's where so much of this comes from is just that need to to, to work for something. And we don't have to work for anything anymore, so... Yeah, I've been yeah. hearing about all right. of the trans refugees coming up from the United States to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> There's a genocide and, happening down here, Aaron. <laughs> and to California, we're, we're supposed to be right. the refuge state for children who want to be trans and aren't allowed to in their states. But this just creates more burden on California and more likelihood of runaways which increases sex trafficking. Yeah. So we're not yeah. seeing the ramifications of this in in a very broad picture way. It's all become about protecting the minority, protecting the persecuted. Mm -hmm. I think you could probably do a lot of these girls a, a world of good just teaching them some of your homestead, homesteading off-grid skills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right, yes. Instant cure for some of them, I think. <laughs> Maybe. Transgender doesn't really make much sense off-grid, I don't think. Or non-binary, non I definitely wouldn't make any sense off-grid. No, what would be the point? <laughs> but trans, I mean, the whole medicalization of trans means that you're going to be on a medical grid. And... I, I didn't like that idea at all to to be on any kind of prescription drugs, whether for depression or sleep or whatever. It was like, these are problems I need to figure out how to solve before it becomes a gateway to even more prescription drugs. 
Mm-hmm. So that's part yeah. of my off-grid uh, creed. Yeah, it's not having that pharmaceutical leash, essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. right. Because if when you're entertaining, I mean, the reason I got so focused on off-grid was because of peak oil, the, the concept that oil will be is a finite resource and will we have become to the peak of growth and now we will be pulling back because this oil will not be as plentiful as before so we will experience an economic uh, reduction in our ability to fuel growth so that's why I wanted to live a life where I was less and less reliant on these manufactured goods. Uh, I mean, I'm still reliant on getting on an airplane to fly home to Thailand. So that kind of blows my whole carbon footprint out of the water. So I don't claim to be an environmentalist. I just am preparing for uh, when and if the day comes that there isn't as much resources, that we do have to do more of this on our own, that we aren't going to be able to order on Amazon and get it delivered the next day, anything we want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think the medical leash, I think it also is a barrier to more trans people speaking up too, like unless someone, because I do think some people have benefited in, you know, from medicalization and don't necessarily want to detransition, but but don't agree with the politics and how the how that's being pushed. But when you're dependent on a system that is really invested in that way of thinking, I mean, it, it's a it's just a very it's a very can be a very frightening position to be in when you're dependent on the system, but you would estrange yourself from that system by speaking up. A biting the hand that feeds kind of exactly yeah, yeah. yeah i mean less so maybe for like the medications and stuff but definitely for the surgeries like i had some pretty uh, you know some uncomfortable conversations with some of the surgeons where had they known my opinion about some of this stuff they would have thought me thought they would have hated me they would have thought i was just a, a hateful bigot and they would have hated me it's like well i don't know if i really want to be unconscious under your knife if you hate my guts and you think i'm a bigot right so it's it's (laughs) it's it's an uncomfortable relationship we're kind of we're trapped in this system in more ways than one yes that's a good point Hmm. well we've gotten a lot of uh a lot of really good uh, conversational roots here but um obviously we wanted to hear about the book right oh right uh, yeah, which I, I just love that that title, "The Unexpected Penis," which really just kind of sums up <laughs> a lot of uh, a, a lot of the cultural moment. Um, but what, yeah, what's the inspiration? What what are you um, uh, what are you uh, trying to trying to explain, etc.? Yes, um, I didn't. I when it was first suggested that I should write a book about this, I was like, no, why would I do that to myself? I'd just be become the source of all this hatred. But then I, and I also wanted to write my own memoir, The Girl's Guide to Off-Grid Living. 
but in order to write that book, I had to uh, figure out what was going on in the gay community with all of the trans mm. stuff. Because this, as soon as I started writing about my gender non-conforming childhood, I could just see the wheels turning of, oh, she could have been trans. Oh, she probably would be trans now. <laughs> you know, maybe. Yeah. So that sort of thing, I was like, why Why can't I just be non-conforming? And it paralyzed me. It, it just made me feel like I need to know more about this in order to claim it back for my own story and as the more I got into it it just became so fascinating and interesting a conversation in itself that I would try to have these conversations with people my own LGB friends and they just didn't like the direction I was going in mm -hmm. that I should question it so I was like what is going on here why are people so taken in by this and that became kind of my practice was how do i argue this and how do i make it clear so that was the goal of my book was to make to use the old language use sex-based pronouns explain all the jargon just so I could explain what was going on so people would understand it, ordinary heterosexual people. And I, I managed to do that because now the, the response I've gotten uh, from heterosexual people was, wow, this is eye-opening. I had no idea this was going on. And then the response from people who know knew something about it was, oh my, this is just uh, one cognitive dissonance experience after another, after another, because I, I was in the feminist movement, I was in the gay movement, and I was working towards this. And this is the logical end was to accept trans people. And now I'm seeing from the way you set it up in your book that we're courting disaster in several ways and we're going to erase women and we're all kinds of things are going to happen that I never had really put my mind to before because I was all into this we need to accept everybody and gender fluidity and that would be all good so I I'm it, it's a small book so people look at it and go oh I could manage that and it's easier to hand to people. And, and I wanted to make it funny too. So my title is a little humorous in that sense. And I managed to carry on that theme in, in memories of how I was introduced to these concepts. So it's a, a little bit of a memoir and presentation of material so that I could show people rather than tell them, you know, here's what happened. You can make up your own mind about it. And it does, you know, I'm definitely taking a, a skeptic's view, but it's, it's uh, for good reason. And by the end of the book, you 
hopefully we'll we'll see some of the things I've I've tried to explain, like the prison, criminal men being housed with women, and the whole teaching children that you can change sex, how that is just taken literally. And it it's leading children along in and the whole emphasis on your authentic identity and having to have one, why that is uh, not a good idea and why are we changing decades of information about child development and suddenly jumping to the child knows who they are, <laughs> you know, from, from the get-go and not even looking into it. Well, do they have reason, especially girls? who are sexualized and become victims of, of society in, in a sense and may want to escape it. So all those things that I keep presenting is to push back against the narrative that my LGBT community is so fond of that we're hated, like we always been hated, we're, we're being persecuted. And I'm just like, no, I, I, I'm tired of that story. And it's not what I'm seeing. And here, here you should know more. You might agree with these some of these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you packed a lot of information into the book. It, and it's well-researched. But I agree that, you know, it doesn't come across as like this really academic research book, right? I mean, you do ground it very much in your own personal story. And I, I think that... I think that really helps a reader connect with that information. That it's just a very sort of... I think common sense sort of explanation of of these ideas and how these ideas are are harmful and and I think what I like about it too is that I think one of the things a reader would come away with is understanding that there's just another way of thinking about this. It's not about saying that these people are bad and these people need to be genocided off the earth. Like they, there's just another way of interpreting and and understanding these experiences mm -hmm. and 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 integrating us into society in ways that don't cause the problems that that queer theory way of thinking of it is causing problems. Right. And I, I think uh, having a, a lighthearted sort of humorous approach is very important too, because people are more apt to read it and enjoy reading it rather than feeling they don't have to commit to, well, I need to research this and find out more. It's more like, well, here's an interesting angle. Let's see what this lesbian activist from the Bay Area has to say about it. And maybe I learned some insights. And the moment you get into the first chapter, it's like, well, this is funny too. Let's, let's enjoy the ride. Yeah, being entertained like that and laughing, I'm sure, kind of counters what a lot of people would think of as kind of like intimidating or like they're entering into blasphemous territory by reading the book. You know, it's also very helpful, of course, that you occupy a few different um, uh, demographic uh, uh, labels, let's say, like so being a lesbian and a feminist and also having this kind of, you know, um, Two spirit, essentially, uh, a classification from your from your native culture. Like those things are very, very handy, obviously, in being able to tell this story um, to 
again, yeah, the heterosexual normies who don't understand um, that there is even a conflict anywhere uh, in in the alphabet soup. So right. that's also yeah, very useful. Yes, I do have that advantage of being a native, as it were. I'm going to guide people through from a LGBT perspective. So that much gives me a little bit more credibility. And then having the indigenous knowledge to go with it, it's like, look, we can do this. We can integrate mm -hmm. trans cross-sex presentations. We just need to acknowledge that it doesn't break the binary. We still, otherwise we're in chaos. Nobody knows what reality is anymore. And there's never going to be any uh, truth in reporting if journalists are, are referring to criminals by their adopted sex name and it's just confusing to people yeah. and they're never going to understand what's at stake here i saw a, a beautiful um sh really short video recently it was um a young guy had taken his dad to Thailand for a vacation and he, he filmed his dad. So his dad wasn't familiar with the culture. And there was this long lineup into the men's washroom that looked like it was all women. And, and it was, so it was just a short video clip of this dad walking into the men's washroom and looking around and seeing all these, you know, these lady boys oh, thinking, yeah. think, thinking that he was in the wrong washroom. And this kid was just kind of laughing at his dad, like, you know, dad doesn't understand, right, that the lady boys. But I thought it was interesting that the lady boys just used the men's washrooms there. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, there isn't the violence towards mm -hmm. homosexuals and cross-dressing presentations because it's understood that it exists and it's part of our karmic place in the world. So there isn't this rush to protect the vulnerable trans women who are men and are these women saying oh we're happy to have them in our spaces because they need to be protected it's like we're all like appealing to this sort of uh maternal instinct that we have to protect and and help so there's there's no i mean the culture here has created these problems. The the male violence, the uh, confusion, confusing children, and it's all so unnecessary when we could all just be integrated and accepting. I think in, in cultures that don't have these uh, third gender knowledge cross-sex presentations are much more disturbing mm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so people react in, in in ways that that wouldn't be a problem where, where it is understood they question it they want to know they are they they just feel this this ease and this discomfort. So to have a science 
kind of explanation of, oh, the, these people are born in the wrong body, kind of uh, creates a, a boundary around straight heterosexual people of, oh, that's, that won't happen to me. And and so I'm in no danger because this is actually a medical condition. So and we used we've... to think it wasn't contagious either, but uh oh. <laughs> yes, now now we're, we're now it's not just a medical condition, it's it's an option. Yeah. Apparently, as as you pointed out in your intersex uh, chapter, even even this, you know, intersex condition is contagious because people are identifying into it at a at an alarming rate <laughs> and the condition of intersex has been expanded to include things that had nothing to do with how their body presented itself so that that just brings more weight to to this science idea mm -hmm. It's a distortion. Yeah, I agree. It yeah. is a distortion. Well, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. It, it's uh, your book was a fascinating read, and it's it's been a great conversation. Thank you. We'll post a link. I really um, enjoyed it. Yeah, we'll post a link under underneath the, in the show notes a link to oh, to the book. So, so if people want uh -huh. to order it, they can do that. Right, and I also have a Substack now to continue my tales. Oh, oh, excellent, good. excellent. Link that as well, yeah. Nice. Yeah, nice. can you send me a link to that? Uh, yes, Yeah, sure. and then I'll put it in the show notes. Oh. Sweet. Sweet, thanks again. Very thanks, Amanda. Thank you. Stay with us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.